Hi, it's Lori Dean, Program Director for Dusty Discs Radio, and welcome back to another episode of Liner Notes, a very special episode. And of course, Dan Hare is your usual host, but once again, Dan is in the guest chair this week. If you haven't heard part one of my interview with Dan, I highly encourage you to go check it out. We talk about Dan's musical career and background, how he's been able to essentially get a good read on the musical landscape and adjust accordingly so that he's been able to have a career in the music business for over four decades. So it's a fascinating interview. I encourage you to check it out if you haven't. But today we're going to be talking about some of the other skills and experiences and passions that Dan has in his life and how he maybe was able to mold all that into his music career or do it alongside or I'm not sure. Dan will have to tell us himself, but he is in the guest chair again and I want to say welcome, Dan. Thank you once again for flipping to the other side of the microphone. Well, thank you and nice to talk to you, Lori. And uh yeah, I've, it feels interesting to be on this side of the mic, but I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to share all this with us because we were chatting a little bit before uh, we went to this recording, and I was you know, thinking that when you focus on a career like music, it can be all-encompassing. So for you to be able to find the time and energy and, and passion, I suppose, to take on these other areas is a little bit unusual and unique, and so that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you more about this. And I really think our members are going to be curious about that as well. So I appreciate you taking the time to continue the conversation, so to speak, but from a little bit of a different angle. Yeah, no, I appreciate that too. I've had lots of time to think about it. And of course, there's always defining moments in life that come along and you go, which path am I going to take? And especially when you're a young guy, you're thinking, oh, I like to play music, but is there any life in this for me? Is there any career here for me? Or should I just sort of pack it in and do other things? So there's a lot of sort of forks in the road and a lot of defining moments that come along in the process of looking back and, and, and the decisions that I made and the things that I decided to do. It all sort of worked together so I could stay focused on the music, but still do other things as well. That's really unique. A lot of times if people do take a a different path, they don't necessarily go back to the one they were pursuing previously, such as music in your case. So I'm I'm very interested to know how, how all that ties together. And because there are a lot of different areas that you have touched on, I'm just going to jump in with a couple and maybe we can take it from there and build upon that. What I was interested in, you're a martial artist and you also have a master of divinity. On the surface, those look like two polar opposites. (laughs) So it's very curious. How did that come to be and and, and for both of those areas? And uh, do you actually see a correlation between the two? Well, I think everything, you know, I sort of look at life as one package. So everything I do in my life and everything I've done in my life all sort of comes together. But I'd have to, I'd have to step back just a little bit from that and just say where the process went. Okay. I always wanted to focus on the music. So what I thought was, you know, of course, I'm in my early 20s. I'm, I'm, I was working for my parents' carpet store when I was maybe 21 years old. And then they closed the store because this was right around, right around 1982 when the economy went down. And a lot of things changed then. It was a real tough time for those that remember that time. The interest rates went really high up to almost 20% at one point. And it was a real difficult time. And so I found myself out of a job and I thought, I'm in my early 20s. I like to play music. I'm just going to play music for a living. As hard as it is, I don't care. I'm going to focus on that. And so that was my focus. And I didn't want to take that focus off. So I put a band together and I went out and played. And of course, it didn't last very long. And then I had another band and it didn't last very long. But I, I thought to myself, 
if I'm going to make a living playing music, I need to stay focused on the music. I can do other things as well, which I ended up doing, but it didn't take away from my main focus because what I had analyzed at that time was what happened with some people is they, they would say, well, I got to get a job. I got to pay the bills, which is fair enough. But the problem is, is that that would take them away from the focus on music. Mm -hmm. So then music would become a side thing, a secondary thing. And then eventually I'd talk to people and say, well, my guitar has got two inches of dust on it. I haven't pulled it out from under the bed for three months and you know this sort of thing and i'm like oh gee like i'm i'm not going to fall into that i'm going to stay focused on it and then do the other things i need to do you know if i need to i help would help my brother with a flooring job or you know do something to make a little bit of extra money which i did lots of times but i was still focused on the music and that was really important for me so what happened with the with the other pursuits was I think I shared with you last time I had a PA company because PAs were expensive to rent. So right. I just thought, well, I'll buy one. And then there was a whole bunch of sort of ancillary things that went along with that. So I learned how to do sound. So I would do sound for people and make money with that. I'd take my gear out and do sound because it was a way to make some money. Um, I built cases like the, a lot of times bands needed road cases. And I found an alternative of making more inexpensive ones. So I made a bunch of those up and, and sold a bunch of those. So I was just trying to find things that were related to the music business that I could still make money in and still stay focused on the music. Yeah. So sound, sound was a really cool thing to be able to do too. And then what happened was I had a band in 1984 that was called March Hare. It was me and my brother and bands back then. I'm not sure. Like I think I shared with you, you know, having a band was like herding cats. You know, <laughs> you're trying to put people together. You're trying to find gigs and yeah. nothing kills a band quicker than, than no gigs. So, you know, when people come and go and people are playing for various reasons. So uh, my band in 1984, my band broke up which I was really devastated by. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? I've, I've gone through two bands in the last two years, Stone Fox and March Hare. And I'd done a bunch of great gigs, but now I, I had no band. So I thought, well, I got to do something positive. I need to do something that will be a boost for me just in life. So I thought, well, I'll go down to the community college and I'll just sign up and I'll take a couple courses. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And, and it's, it, because I was curious, I thought, well, I can go there and I could ask questions and I could do stuff. So I went down and I signed up for a couple of courses. I think it was a, one was a business course and one was a study skills course and they were just great. And I thought, well, I love this. I can explore my curiosity here. I can ask questions I can do. So I ended up, I thought, okay, fine. I'm going to, I'm going to go to school on the side and I'm going to stay focused on the music and then. I'll do my schooling and stuff through the week. I'll take classes. So after that, I just was off to the races after that. I just really enjoyed it. And I wasn't looking for another career or anything. I was just trying to satisfy my curiosity about things. So you were able to do the courses during the day and, and work on your music in the evening or how did, or was it the other way around? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I took some night courses and stuff too, but see back then the community college was super cheap. I mean, I think courses were like a hundred dollars or $120. Right. And right, I just yeah. thought, so I, when I, when I got into that environment, I thought, well, I, I took courses on just about everything. I took philosophy and psychology and political science and history and English and took some, you know, uh, earth science, just anything that was on there that I thought might be interesting. I thought, well, I'll take that. And then I ended up, um, I really gravitated towards English lit because I really liked it be, mainly because I enjoyed the reading and also because you could talk about anything in those classes. Those were the most open classes I ever took. You could talk about anything to do with life, science, history, anything. And then I really enjoyed history. So I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a degree in English and history because those are the two things that I gravitated towards, even though I took lots of other stuff. And so 
I spent a couple of years at the community college doing general studies and I just really enjoyed it. It was really a, a fun time in my life, but I was playing every weekend. So what I would do is I would use the weekends to look forward to, to going to school and I would use the school to go to look forward to playing on the weekends. And I kind of pulled them back and forth and it, and it really boosted me. Sounds like it. And of course I had small kids and we were building a house. We built our first house in 86. So I was in the middle of doing that. And, and of course we're having, we have two kids. So they were young in then because they were born in the eighties. So I had a lot of stuff going on, but I was young and energetic and I wanted to, again, I wanted to stay focused on the music because I always felt that if I took my focus off of that, it would go away and I wouldn't be happy. So you were still able to essentially make a, a good living playing music while going to school instead of sort of having a part-time job as well as playing music, which in a lot of cases, as you were saying earlier, someone's other job can eventually take over and then their guitar just ends up getting dusty in some back room. It seems you found a way to still yeah. satisfy that other part of your life by taking the courses that weren't going to be job-related and still focus on the music as you so passionately want to do. Yeah, and and so what I was able to do, and which a lot of musicians aren't able to do, was I had to put some kind of, um, you know, guide on it. So basically my wife said, okay, fine, if you want to play music, that's fine, but you got to give me a certain amount of money every week so I can pay the bills. I don't care how you get it. You can collect pop bottles, you can busk, I don't care what you do, but I need $200, so we set it at $200. So I had to make $200 every week and give it to my wife. So a lot of musicians are like, yeah, well, you know, I had a couple of gigs, man, and they went away. And for me, it was like, no, you got to. And if you miss a week, you owe the $200. So I had to do that for the house bills. Now, you know, I'm making a modest amount of money. I wasn't some gigs, some, some weeks, that's all I made was $200, mm -hmm. but I still had to come up with $200 every week and it worked. And, and of course we just upped it as the years went by. And as I was doing better, we, we upped it more, but I had to pay my wife. So my friends used to joke with me, like, how is it that you owe your wife money? I said, well, the way that our financial empire works is I just, I pay into the household stuff and she looks after everything because she's really good at that. Uh -huh. So what happened though, the, the benefit of that was I had to figure out a way to do it. So it was necessity is the mother of invention. So you, okay, you want to play music, but you can't just get a couple of casual gigs whenever you like. You have to figure it out and you have to play consistently and you have to bring home the money that you make and, and put it into the household. Even if it's modest, you need to make it and do it. Well, that led to all kinds of things. I had to find inventive ways of finding gigs. I had to make sure the band was improving. I went and played in a duo with my friend for a while. Just the two of us played. And, and you know, we had a drum machine, bass and guitar. We sounded like a band. And, and I went and made a bunch of money playing in a duo. I didn't care what it was. Just needed to do something music-related. You had mentioned in the other interview that you were reading the, the changing musical landscape and adjusting accordingly. Was all this happening at the same time? Or were you at that point just thinking, I'm just going to get these, these gigs? Was it more focused on just honoring that agreement that you had with your wife to get that $200 each week? Or even at that point, were you still looking around thinking things are changing and I think we can pivot here? Well, I was always looking at the landscape because that's you know, I did a seminar a few years ago, Long McQuaid asked me if I would do a seminar on how to help musicians find paying gigs, because that was something that I had always been quite good at. And so I was always reading the landscape and, and the main motivating force is you go, you just ask yourself, well, where's the money out there? Like, where's the money that, that people are going to pay you to sing and play music? 
And in the 80s, it was the clubs and it was the pubs and there were some private events. And you sort of look at where the money is and then you've got to, you've got to get a product that those people are going to pay you to sing. So a lot of people that say, well, there's no gigs, you know, I can't find any paying gigs. Well, yeah, but you're not giving the product that the people that have money are going to pay. I mean, I, I've been paid thousands of dollars to play in somebody's backyard. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've done gigs that weren't actually gigs, but they were invented because people liked what we did and hired us to do it. Right. So my principle was even the same back then. I thought, okay, where's the money? Where are the gigs? Well, there's duo gigs out there that pay money. So go and do some of those. It, that's not, not a big deal. Do a single gig. That's fine. The clubs, I, I wasn't a big club guy just because, and I did it in 83 and I did it in 89. But the thing is, uh, the problem with the clubs is I was away too much and you're doing six nights and you just got to go from town to town to town. And that just wouldn't fit into my lifestyle. So for me to be a big club act in the eighties would never have worked for me. That's not what I wanted to do. So I had to find another way to do it. So again, being inventive and keeping that focus on the music at all times and how can I reinvent myself as needed to make this a go for me as a career? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then what happened was, um, so I went, I did my first two years at community college and I really enjoyed that. And then in 88, I put a band together, the Dan hair band. And I thought, well, I'll go out and tour again and we'll see what happens. Cause I was, I was approaching my mid to late twenties and I thought I better, you know, pull something off here. So I went out and did in 1989, I went and did a year. It was about mid, mid 88, 89. I, I finished my schooling. I had done my first two years of a degree and I thought well, I'll go out and do it. So I did a year. Uh, traveling, touring and stuff. And and again, I think I shared with you before, I just didn't really like it. I didn't like the traveling and really bummed out on the road and stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll come back to Vancouver. I wanted to finish my degree and I wanted to, you know, reacquaint myself with the family and make a living around Vancouver. So I did that and I went back to SFU and I finished my English. I got a degree, an undergrad degree in English lit and a minor in history. So I finished that from 89 to 91. So I graduated in 91 with that. When did you start getting interested in in some of these other things? Was it going along the way, for example, martial arts? Was that something you were interested in when you were younger or did that come up as you were involved in, first of all, community college and then the university and you just sort of, one of those things you went, oh, that's interesting. I want to look into that further. Or is that something that was with you from a very young age, that interest? Well, it always was. I wasn't formally trained. I, I did wrestling in high school, which I really enjoyed. I was always very physical, so I liked the physical aspect. Not not getting hurt, of course, because I didn't want to hurt my hands. Yeah, I was just going to say, you, know, you don't want to hurt your livelihood. No, but I but I always liked the, the way that... See, martial arts brings together the physical and the mental in a way that I had never experienced anything else like that. Because your your mind is in control of your body as opposed to the other way around. So martial arts has really good lessons as far as, um, you know, when your body tells you you're tired, well, your mind is the one that decides whether you're tired, not your body. So you start to develop that over the years and it really is effective and, it, and it, as a life skill, it's fantastic. So when I was going to SFU, there was a Shotokan Karate uh, class up there. So I took that, actually took my daughter to it a bunch too, but I went to that for about eight months, but I didn't have the time and the money, so I couldn't carry on with it. And then in the early nineties, I went and I did some time at a Taekwondo school, which was real nice. It was Junri though. So it wasn't, um, contact and I wanted the contact. Mm-hmm. So I had to, um, you know, I did about eight months there too, and I enjoyed it and I learned some things, but I didn't, uh, um, didn't get exactly what I wanted out of that, but I was always interested in some form of combative sports and the sport of it. Right. So, um, it, when I was a kid, we moved all the time. So I was, I ended up having lots of different 
scuffles and fights and stuff. And, and I just wanted to get some more skill in that respect too. Although I, I never liked the, the sort of angry side of it, but I like mm-hmm. the, the skill side of it. And again, it's such a great life lesson. So then about uh, probably no more than that maybe 20 years ago now I, I i joined the boxing club and and ended up doing my black belts in in um, a particular school where your your four ranges are boxing kickboxing weapons and ground and i did about 14 or 15 years of that which i really enjoyed and it really is life-changing you know it, it really helps your life to be um, better i find and also I look at being an entertainer as being an athlete. I've always compared those things directly. So I want to be strong. I want to be healthy. You know, I, we used to party a bit in the eighties and stuff. And then the early nineties, I just quit everything. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. I don't do any of that stuff. I just live a real clean life. My weight is within five pounds of where I should be. And I'm just super healthy, you know, and that's been a really important part of my music life just to be able to, to, to think of it a bit like being an athlete. I really like that analogy because especially as we age, you know, we have to spend a little bit more time looking after our bodies and our mental health and everything. And if we haven't been doing that for a period of time, it can seem like a quite a steep climb up a mountain to try and suddenly go, okay, I'm now 50, 60 and beyond, and I have to start looking after myself. Whereas if you have that discipline at an early age, it's it built into your psyche and you just continue on. And your focus in terms of relating your musical career and being a performer to being an athlete, I think has served you well as you continue to, to go forward. Well, I, th- I think that's right because I, you know, on the downside, I have so many friends in the music business that just, you know, ended up being out of, out of shape and overweight and they smoked and they drank too much and stuff. And, and you get into your mid fifties, you know, it seems all fun when you're in your mid thirties, but when you're in your mid fifties and pushing 60 and beyond, uh, th- those years catch up with you and you, you can't get them yeah. back. And, and I must say at my, where I sit today, I haven't felt my age at all. I'm, I'm still as capable as I ever was. I'm healthy and happy and, and capable. So I'm really thankful for that. I'm, I'm humble about it, but I'm thankful. And I, and I made the decisions earlier in my life that paid off in that respect. And I was just going to bring that up about you actually made these decisions and you understood the uh, the mind over matter, so to speak, of being a martial artist and how that could not only apply to every aspect of your life, but I'm sure you can bring that to bear when you're performing. If there are times when your body feels like, I just can't do another gig, your mind is saying, well, of course we can and here we go. And you can combine the two and and move forward in a, a totally different way than perhaps a lot of musicians, as you mentioned, who haven't aged well because of their lifestyle, feel like it's a a chore to perform. And a lot of times that comes through and the audience sees that and they don't get necessarily the best performance. Well, I think that's right. Again, I think it's important to work hard for your audience. That's something that almost never comes up, you know, like the people want their entertainers to be, in my mind, to be uh, sober, clear-headed, talented, good, and and to work hard for their audience, right? Yeah. So a lot of musicians, you know, as they got older, they got jaded, you know. So someone asked me one time, well, how do I how do I make a living in the music business? Like, what what's the bottom line? I said, well, you got to stay hungry. Yeah, like yeah. you got to you got to stay hungry. Remember how you felt when you were in your early twenties and you had stars in your eyes and you loved the music and you wanted to be something one day? Find that that that's still in there somewhere. 
but now you're jaded and you're a bit older and you're tired and you got a sore shoulder and you got a sore back and you play for half an hour and you got to sit down like that. People don't want to hear that. Yeah, exactly. You know, they want the enthusiasm and, and the love for the music and stuff. So I always felt that it was a big part of it. The other thing is the partying aspect. You know, I don't talk about that a lot in the, in the interviews and stuff I do with people. And, and I know a lot of the stories out there and a lot of guys got caught up in doing lots of Coke and drinking too much and, and stuff. And, you know, I, I partied in the, in the eighties myself, I smoked pot and drank and stuff. And I, I avoided the, 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 the devil's dandruff and all that nonsense. But, devil's uh, dandruff, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was, I was able to avoid all that stuff, but we partied too much at times. But then in my, in, in the early nineties, you know, I just woke up one day and I just said, you know, like, I just don't really want to do that. That's not what it's about for me. I just want to be clear headed and live a clean life. And so I just, I packed all that all in, in the, in the early nineties. I haven't, I haven't had a drink for 27 years. You know, it's, that just, just not something I'm interested. I don't have anything against it. I just, it's for me, I just didn't want to, that to be the focus of what I was doing when I did gigs. Do you think have, having a family and, and wanting that family to be so important and stay together was one of the contributing aspects to you making these kinds of decisions? Well, I do. And I, and I just think, again, when you look at what is, what does a successful life look like? You know, that was the driving question for me. Like, like if, if I have, you know, a great band and I'm touring around the world and I have hit songs on the radio, but my kids don't talk to me, is that a successful life? Mm-hmm. That's not, that wouldn't yeah. be, that would have been a devastating life for me. I never would have wanted that. So again, in defining what, it, what does it mean to make it? What does it mean to have a meaningful, successful life? And so as I was shaping that in my mind, I realized, you know, I'm going to have to be a good person, be clear headed, sing and play the best you can, be a good dad to your kids, like step up to your responsibilities. Of course, you're going to stumble along the way. You're going to make mistakes, which I have, and I've made many, but, but again, when your focus is to, to be the best you can be and to live a fulfilling life that you can look back on and go, you know, that, that wasn't bad. That was, that was all right. Yeah. It's got to include the whole package. I have so many friends that have done one thing at the exclusion of all other things. And in the end, like one, one person had the saying, I wouldn't have worked so hard to get to the top if I had realized there was nothing there. Hmm. The interest that you did pursue to a point where you actually got degrees, you mentioned uh, English and, and also this Master of Divinity. Again, what, was that a natural extension of what you were just learning in general, your curiosity? Or did, was there a turning point that made you say, I want to find out more about the divine perhaps, or want to be able to use that in service of others some way. Well, it's funny too, because that was a complete left turn. Like in in 1991, I graduated from SFU and I thought, well, I'll go to Cap College and study music. That might be an interesting thing to do. And and I'm around Vancouver and I like education. So I went and signed up at Cap College. I got all my stuff. I did my audition. I got in, of course, because I had already been making a living playing music. It wasn't something I needed to do uh, in order to enhance my career in any way. So I went there for about a month, you know, and I just, I didn't want to play piano. And I, I had taken hundreds of lessons. I, I knew most of the stuff and certainly in the first year or two that they would teach there. So I thought, yeah, okay, it's a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort for something I, I already kind of know. And and I it just wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable there. So I left after about a month and a half. What is Cap College for those who may not know? Well, Capilano College is the is a music school in Vancouver. Okay. You know, they teach a lot of other things, but a lot of a lot of the music people went to Cap College. It's Cap Capilano University now, I think it's called. And that's where a lot of people went to get musical training. Right, got it. And so I thought, well, I'll just I'll just sign up and I'll go. And of course you have to audition to get in. And I wanted to play guitar there, but then they make you play piano. And there was a bunch of aspects about it that I didn't really 
that weren't sort of sitting well with me and I wanted to keep playing. So I dropped out of that. And then I had become a Christian when I was 18 and I got baptized. And then in the eighties, I went out in the music business and I, I really wasn't living in a way that was, that was compatible with my faith. And and I just felt bad about that. And so in the early nineties, I thought, you know, I should, I should really um, explore this and just see if it's something that's going to make sense for me moving forward in my life. And I need to get back to a, a faith that, that I can live with. So I thought to myself, you know, when I finished at Cap College, I thought, well, I need to take it like a theology course or something. I don't know. I'll just sign up at the at the local Baptist college and I'll just take theology 101. That was my only thought. That's the only thought I had. And um, I went there and I thought, okay, I'll listen. You know, I'm, I'm open. I'll listen to whatever. So uh, I went there and then about three weeks in, the, the professor called me over. He said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I just, I wanted to take theology 101. I don't know much about it. I just thought, no, no, I want to. He goes, well, you already have a degree. You should, you should go to seminary. And I'm like, well, I was just floored. I was like, well, I'm not here to do any of that. I'm not a pastor. I'm not trying to take training in any of that. That's not my skill set or my focus at all. And he said, well, just think about it because you, because you already have a degree, you can catch up with the other stuff and do that. So I thought about it and they had a program that was uh, theology and counseling psychology. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, so I thought, well, that was, that piqued my curiosity. Again, it was more curiosity than anything. And I thought, well, I could take a dual degree program and I could study uh, theology, which I was interested in. I wanted to know more about it and I can study uh, counseling psychology. So I went, I en- ended up signing up just sort of on a whim. It was a real left turn in my life. It wasn't anything I was planning on doing. And I ended up staying there for five years. Wow. I, it was just amazing. Like a, it was a life-changing experience. And then they, they said, well, we need somebody at the college to teach a remedial English class and you have a, an English degree. Would you do that? And I said, oh, sure. So next thing you know, I'm in a class, I'm the English teacher, I'm teaching a first year college students, uh, you know, remedial English class. And that was really fun. I did that for seven years and it, it was interesting. And I was just sharing, you know, teaching people how to write uh, essays and those kinds of things. And then they asked me to set up a writing lab, which was for students from other countries who have a degree, but for whom English isn't their first language. So I did a writing lab. I did that for about seven years and all of these things sort of culminated. I took some more undergrad psychology and I ended up, I did all the coursework for the counseling degree, but I, again, it wasn't my skill set. I didn't want to work as a counselor. So Mm -hmm. I didn't do the, I would have had to do a year of practicums, but I did all the coursework and I really, again, it was life-changing to me. And I just hung out with the counselors for a few years and learned all the lingo and, and learned what they do and their techniques. And same with the theologians, you know, you hang out with them and you figure out what they do. It's like anything in life, right? You, you just go and hang out with the people that already do it. And you learn the jargon. That's one of the yeah. main things you have to, you know, learn the way they talk and the the lingo and the jargon and then get the whole idea of what they do. So I, I got to do that. And that was from 93 to 98. And then in 98, I graduated. I, I got the Master of Divinity, which was was the, the pastoral degree, even though I, I had never had any intention of working as a pastor. But it ended up I was licensed to do weddings. So I've I've done marriages for quite a few people. Not that, that often. I usually decline because it's... Some people think it's kind of a novelty to have me marry them, but I've done it for some friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I've done lots of memorials as well. Like if 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 people pass away, I I would officiate the memorial. I've done that lots of times. Okay, yeah. Wow. And and you were a chaplain at the Langley Hospital for a while. Well, I was just for what happened was um, I I was involved, and I still am at the Baptist Church in Langley. So every two weeks a year, they would ask somebody to volunteer to be a chaplain so that the chaplain could take a holiday. So I would, for about 
probably six or seven years, I would be the chaplain at Langley Hospital for two weeks a year. Okay. So, and it was interesting. Again, it wasn't something like I took the Langley Hospice course. Like that it was really, really good. Uh, one of my counseling professors said, you should really go down and take the, the hospice course. And I thought, yeah, yeah, sure. It was like $50 or something. And it was a bunch of nights in a row. And it was really, really good. Like, like shockingly good. It's some, one of those things that you, you come across and you go and take it and it's just alters your life, you know? And, uh, it was really excellent. So, and, and so when the, when the church said, we need to have a volunteer and you have a master of divinity and you took the hospice course, would you do this? And I said, sure. So I did it. And back then you had to have a pager and stuff and you had to comfort people and go and visit families and stuff. And it was a little bit of a stretch for me. You know, I've done things in my life that I would step up to the challenge of it, even though it's not really my skill set per se. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm not really pastoral in that sense. I, I try and I do my best and I care about people. Mm -hmm. And I, and I did have some, some good encounters with people and was able to, to assist some families at difficult times. And you go up there in the middle of the night and a family member's passing away and you just, you know, you pray with the family and you just sort of comfort them the best you can. Again, not super comfortable for me, but I was okay with it. I needed to do it. So that just came the, the pastoral thing or, or the, even the seminary thing was a left turn, but the, uh, the chaplaincy thing was again, you know, and then I got involved in the prison, um, visiting prisoners and stuff. Yeah. So I, I did that lots. So it's called M2W2 and basically it's a, it's a Christian organization, but they just go and visit people. You're not there to, you know, to preach at people. You're just there to be friends with them and, and comfort them because a lot of people in prison are completely ostracized by their family. They're, um, sometimes their family is thousands of miles away and, and it's a real dark and depressing place for people to be. So, you know, I would go, I played music there lots of times. I'd take my guitar and sing and play for them. I did that countless times and then just go and visit and you sponsor someone. So I sponsored a particular prisoner and, and I would go and play crib with them and visit them and, you know, and Matt Squee and, and elbow elbow lake and it was a bunch of different institutions so i've been to lots of the different institutions over the years i don't not so much now but this was probably 10 years ago you've had quite the encounters with a variety of people and is there one common thread that you find when you are either comforting someone or just listening to them perhaps share with you is there something that's i guess the common thread amongst all the people you've encountered well i think you know if you care about people I mean, that, that's what everything stems from, right? If you, if you love people and you care about people, which I do, I'm far from perfect and, and I've got a bit of an edge to me at times, but I do love people and I do care about people. And I do think that it's important that we are able to, to share that in some measure. And, and again, for me to take a left turn like that, uh, that was my motivating force. I just thought, you know, these are human beings, right? They need to be cared for and they need to be respected. So it, it sounds good to say, well, I respect everybody. Well, do you really? I mean, would you go and visit a prisoner who's con a convicted murderer and, and tell that person? One time I was sitting across from the guy playing crib with him and he, and he looked at me and said, why are you here? And I said, well, I, I care about you. And I just, you know, you're a human being and I care about you. And he said, well, yeah, but there's, there's no angle. You know, are you playing some angle? I said, no, there's no angle. Hmm. I'm just here to, to, to let you know that I care about you. And, you know, you, he's in prison and he needs to be in prison. He did something very bad, but he's still a human being. So, so that was kind of my, my motivating factor is just, just trying to care about people the best that I can. And did that play in, come into play when you were 
writing your book. I wanted to talk about you being an author and, and the type of book you wrote and the interviews you did for that book. Was that another left turn or was that just something that came about naturally from, from what you were doing? Well, it was actually, there's a funny story there because I graduated in 98 with my master of divinity. And then I took two years off, but I really like school and school always draws me back because of my curiosity needs to be satiated. I need to go and, and ask more questions. So I thought, you know what, the best thing to do would be to go and do a degree in philosophy because philosophy, I had taken lots of it anyways, and they really get to the nitty gritty of, of everything. It's, a, it's an odd discipline, but I thought when I first took philosophy, it really annoyed me. And then I found it interesting. And then by the time it was around 2000, I found it really intriguing. I thought, okay, well, it's the first cousin of theology and I need to go in and study the, uh, philosophy. So I went back to SFU. I just signed up and just went back and said, I'm here to, to do a philosophy degree. So I stayed there for four years and I did that. And it was really good. Like it's a bit odd. Like philosophy is an odd discipline for sure, but it, it really teaches you how to think and analyzing arguments and all those kinds of things. So I spent four years doing that and then once I was finished that, I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? And, and philosophy has a way of twisting your head inside out and, and then putting it back in your brain, in your skull case, because you think. Is that what annoyed you initially? You mentioned that first you were annoyed. Well, by yeah, it? because they, you know, for example, you take a course, I took a course one time called the philosophy of law, right? And so that the course textbook was a 90 page law book. And we just tortured every sentence and every phrase and every word in that book for like three months we just tortured every word and i'm like what is the value of this yeah i can see that yeah. would be annoying <laughs> and but then i realized that you know if, if you want to argue and get down to the nitty-gritty of things it, it you learn how to deconstruct sentences and phrases and meanings and and sort of understand it at a much deeper level true enough yeah even though it takes you places sometimes that are odd you know, so they'll ask weird questions like, um, you know, are numbers, what are numbers? Do numbers actually exist or are numbers just abbreviations of sentences that we make up? And then you have to write a paper on that and pick a position. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, okay, I've never thought that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so, so then you go through the exercise and you go, okay, I get it. I mean, they're asking just weird questions, hard and they, so, you, you know, when you're, when you're lifting weights, the way the analogy I use, when you're lifting weights, you get to a certain point where you can't lift any more weight. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is like that for the brain. You push your brain to the outer limits of stuff that you can't understand. And you find those places and you go there. And then, you know, and so I said to a philosophy professor one time, I said, you know, the funny thing about philosophy is that, you know, when I, when I leave the class, I'm more confused than when I come into the class, which just seems kind of the opposite. He goes, well, see, now you're getting it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I said, okay. So okay. then I, yeah. so anyway, so I thought that all through. And then after I finished that in 2004, I thought, well, what am I going to do now? And then I thought, well, you know what? I've got this brilliantly simple idea. The perfect counterbalance to this philosophy stuff is I'm going to write a book and I'm going to just go and find regular people, normal people, and I'm going to ask them questions about their lives and get their take on it because it'll be from the practical side and it'll be the perfect counterbalance to all this philosophy stuff that I've been taking for the last four years. Mm -hmm. So I just designed a, a, a questionnaire and it's just full of regular questions. You know, are you happy? And, and if you're happy on a, a, why are you happy? What made you happy in life? You know, are you happily married? Yes, I'm happily. Okay. Why are you happily married? Like just asking the questions, but just from regular people. And I wasn't arguing with them and I wasn't expecting any profound answers. I was just asking them 
regular stuff. What did you do for a job? Did you like your job? What would you do if you could live your life over? You know, all those kinds of things. So I set off on this journey to write this book, but I wanted it to have lots of substance. I didn't want to just write a book because I was, I needed to be an author and needed to write a book. I wanted to have substance in the book. So it took me two and a half years and I interviewed over 300 people and it was really, really challenging. I mean, it was hard to get the interviews and sometimes hard to do them, but I, I met some people that absolutely blew my mind. Like it just ended up being a life-changing experience for me. How did you get people to participate? You were saying it was challenging sometimes. Like, where did you go to find people, or how did you advertise, perhaps, that you were doing this and ask for volunteers? Well, I set the number at three hundred because I wanted a substantial amount of people. I didn't want to just, you know, interview thirty people, write a book, and then go there. You go. I wanted to, so I set the number at three hundred. It was kind of arbitrary, but I think I thought it was a large enough sample size that it would give me lots of information, lots of content. So I got through the people that I sort of was was near enough to that knew me and I was at about 30 and I'm like good lord what have I done here like this is going to be forever so then eventually uh, most people like I talk about this in the beginning of the book but uh, about a third of the people that I talked to just rejected it flattered I don't want to do your survey I said well it's not a survey it's an interview I'm trying to pass information on to younger people that I glean from older people about life life lessons things that we should do things we could do uh, that you would pass on in an anonymous way. Cause all the interviews were anonymous. I ne- I only took first names and I destroyed, uh, their, their contact information after. So it was all anonymous. So people could be open. And then about another third, I had to sort of, um, cajole them into it. So I had to get some reference letters. So I, I went to some care homes and I got some reference letters from one professor and from a pastor at the church. And I had a reference letter and then I was allowed to, to go through and just meet people randomly. I had a few other people that really helped me by recommending other people. The only criterion was that they'd be over 65 years old. They had to be between 65 and 100 because I figured they had enough time in this crazy world to figure things out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that was it. So I just kept plowing on it. I took a break in the middle because I was discouraged and I didn't think I was going to be able to make it to the end. So I took about a three-month break and then eventually I got back to it and I worked on it every day and got it done. And then I went out and shared a lot of that information. I've done countless speaking engagements, sharing what I learned from these people. And what's the book called? It's called Regrets. They've had a few. It's kind of a takeoff on the Frank Sinatra song. So it's called Regrets. They've had a few. It's on Amazon and I've sold lots of them and, and people really enjoy it when they come to the seminars. I've, I've done um, life skills seminars and things based on you know all my training and, and the book there's so many ways I could go from here because there's so many other opportunities to talk to you about the specific areas. But I I think I wanted to ask you a more general question, first of all, in terms of bringing all of this together in your life. How do you combine the lessons you've learned, I guess your life lessons, with the parts of you that take it to the stage, the musician in you, the performer in you, the entertainer in you? Are you able to look at that experience differently based on all of this, these other experiences that you've encountered? Well, I, again, I try to bring it all together. You know, Kim and I, when we had our Don Hayes music, we did seminars helping people to um, feel comfortable on stage. And, you know, I used to do the TV shows all the time and we did the breakfast show and whatnot. And then I was a commentator, a political and social commentator on a couple of different TV shows as well. And I just sort of looked at it all the same. I'm just the person who I am. I'm doing the best I can with my life. Everything that comes along, I'll put myself into it the best that I can, and I'll leave it at that. So if I'm singing and playing, 
music, then I, I, I love my audience. It's the same as, as when I'm visiting people in prison. I, I, I care about my audience genuinely. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm genuinely thankful to be up there singing and playing. And I hope that that comes across. And, and one of the best compliments I have ever got, I think I shared with you last time, was when people come up and they go, well, you really love what you do and it's totally obvious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's the best compliment you could possibly get, you know. So, so for me, it, it, all sort of, it all sort of works together. It's like a ball of yarn and everything you do, every experience you have, every setback, everything's like on that ball of yarn and you just keep growing and building. So I try not to separate things. I just try to keep it all uh, as one thing. So, for example, when we did our seminars on on helping people feel comfortable on stage, we were, we were in front of the audience. There was, I don't know how many people there, maybe 20 or more. And, you know, we, we were looking at, I was looking out at the audience standing on the stage and I, I was, said to one person, how are you doing? And she said, fine. And I said, are you comfortable? She said, oh, yeah. I said, come, I said well, come up here. So she came up on the stage and now she's looking at all the people. (laughs) And I said, are you comfortable? She goes, well, not really. I said, well, why not? It's all the same people. No one's changed. Nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is you got up from your chair and now you're standing in front of people. Why would you feel different? It's all the same people. And so the point I was trying to make to her and and to everyone there is that we're just people. You should Mm -hmm. be able to float up on the stage, float off the stage, whatever. You're the same person. Just be yourself. Be authentic sing and play, do the best you can and leave it at that. And being in the moment, it sounds like every experience you have, you are in the moment and enjoying that moment to the fullest. I try to be like, if I'm, if I'm at my martial arts class and, and, and that's a real in the moment thing, because, you know, you can go there and you can be kind of half asleep, but when somebody's trying to punch you in the face, it kind of wakes you up pretty you quick. Up. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. so you have to be in the moment, but, but again, it's in a positive way. And, and I've got some great friends from, from my martial arts training and stuff and guys that I love. And, and I think if you, if you love people, you know, Dale Carnegie years ago in his, in his book, how to win friends and influence people said that, you know, you got to be nice to people, but it's got to be genuine. It can't be fake. Yeah. And that was the key. Like, like some people use their niceness as a manipulative tool or, or some way of, of getting something they need out of somebody else. We've all encountered people like that yeah. where they, they don't care about you. They're just playing a game. So for me, it was, it was just be a genuinely good hearted person. And that, that to me is the greatest attribute someone can have. You mentioned reading Dale Carnegie, and I've noticed in your interviews with the guests, too, you refer to a lot of books, usually biographies or autobiographies of musicians directly related to what you're talking about with the guest. Are you a voracious reader? Do you love reading about other people in their lives as well? Well, again, my reading has been, I mean, I've read thousands of books and in my life. And, and of course, going to school for all those years, you, you just you read books constantly because you have to. I mean, I used to read, at my height, I would read upwards to 200 pages a day. And then I got down to a hundred, you know, now I'm around 50. I try to read a book a week. I, I don't always hit that, but I, you know, if I don't read 50 books in a year, I'm not happy about that. Mm-hmm. So I, I do try to read. Reading is kind of a lost art for some people nowadays. I don't quite understand why I, I love reading and and it's an important part of my life. So as I said, I, you know, I, I own thousands of books. I have quite a, quite a decent library and, and I just always have read books because uh, it's just a good way to to get information and it's it's a good way to to enhance your brain. So yeah, I read all the time. There's so much you've already done and you've got a lot more life ahead of you. And I know you ask this question of your guests a lot about bucket lists. Are there yeah. is there anything left to do on on your bucket list or is it going to be one of those things that you'll know it when it happens? 
Well, I, I kind of like Robbie Lane's answer because I, I felt the exact same way. He said, like, there's no rocking chair for me because yeah. I, I asked Robbie, how long are you going to go on, you know, and, and you're going to hit the rocking chair. He goes, I'm never hitting the rocking chair. I'm going to do my thing as long as I can do it. And I thought that's exactly the answer I would give. Like, for me, I'm going to do the best I can as long as I can. As I said, age hasn't affected me in any way at all. At, at this point, it will eventually, but right now it hasn't. And, and so I feel as healthy and happy and capable as I did 20 years ago. And I don't plan on that changing anytime soon. So I'm just going to carry on. I, I wouldn't change much in my life. I mean, apart from the mistakes I made or the fact that, you know, I, I, there were some lean years in there. Uh, but all, again, all those lean years really they they teach you a valuable lesson too. So if I could go back, I wouldn't change very much. And looking forward, I just want to continue to sing and play, continue learning, growing, reading. I'm going to do a series of videos for my book uh, on each chapter. So I'm, I'm planning that out right now. I'm recording some more music now. I got my home studio working again. So uh, just loving life and just happy with with the way everything is, you know. Well, it really sounds like you are loving life and you have been for a very long time. So, Dan, thank you so much for sharing this other aspect of who you are and what you do. And it ties in very nicely with uh, your music. So um, I appreciate it. Thank you again for taking the time to do this. Well, it's my pleasure. And of course, there is one more episode for you to enjoy of my chat with Dan, where he talks about his interviewing style, how he gets the guests to really open up and get real and raw each and every week. And Dan will be back, of course, as host of other episodes of Liner Notes. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about his music-related side, you can visit danhair.com, marchhairband.com, or americanrocklegends.com. Until next time, I'm Lori Dean, Program Director for Dusty Discs Radio. We'll catch you later. <laughs>